Welcome to the JLA Cast, a podcast in which we revisit Grant Morrison's legendary run on JLA, arguably the greatest superhero comic ever written, one issue at a time. My name's John, and I'm a writer and creator of Afterlife Inc. And I'm PJ, and I am the writer of the graphic novel adaptation of Steve Jackson's The Trolltooth Wars. And uh, you're tired. You're you're a, you're a tired fellow today, aren't you? PJ? I'm, I'm a very tired fellow today. I've I've been decorating my house this weekend i've already recorded one podcast today so <laughs> <laughs> uh do, do you in your kind of like heightened state of being <laughs> that comes with being knackered uh, do, you, do you find the lines are blurring a little bit have you started talking about the wrong thing at the right time yeah like the the one i just recorded was an episode of the the star trek podcast i do and i kept on going wait am i talking about the episode of star trek i watched beforehand or the issue of jla i read this morning which one is it oh god has there not been a star trek x-men crossover if only in novel form oh well john (laughs) i'm glad you asked oh dear well no no i am aware of three distinct star trek x-men crossovers there was when marvel first got the star trek license in the mid to late 90s 96 or 97 i want to say they naturally did a Star Trek X-Men one-shot that was the X-Men crossing over with the original series Star Trek crew. Wait, and was it a a, a comic? Yep. Oh, geez, Louise. Yep. I had no idea. That was followed up by another comic that crossed over Star Trek The Next Generation with the X-Men. And then there was a direct sequel to that that was a novel um, that ah. featured the X-Men and, and Star Trek The Next Generation crossing over for a second time. I think that directly novel, referenced I... the events of the previous comic. Was Peter David involved in any of those? I'm not 100% sure. Uh, the only one I can remember is that the novel was written by Michael Jan Friedman. Right. I only ask because my I know Peter David as a, uh, a uh, predominantly a writer of comics, but I'm aware that he has this whole kind of second life as a writer of Star Trek tie-in novels oh yeah he's done loads of them i've read quite a few and his tend to actually be quite a lot of fun um back back in the day when i I haven't really read any star trek novels for a long time but when i was uh his were a lot of the ones i'd pick up and read yeah but in fact i knew him as a writer of star trek novels before i knew him as a writer of oh comics. oh i see i see this is the uh you knew him before he was well, i was gonna say <laughs> famous but you know comic comic famous um so, what are your generally? What are your thoughts on reading uh, a, a novella based on a popular franchise in another medium? Because, like, to me, and this is stupid, but to me, the idea of reading a superhero novel is is just completely alien. I know that sounds stupid. It should work in any medium, but 
I sort of I, I used to when I was in my teens and my early twenties, I read a lot of tie-in novels for the properties I liked, like Star Trek, Star Wars. I did once read one Marvel novel that was like a Spider-Man, Iron Man novel, and it was really bad. <laughs> um, and then I sort of, in the way one does when one is trying to pretend that they're a proper grown-up now, I was like, no, I don't read tie-in books anymore. They're <laughs> not part of it. Uh, and I really looked down on them for a while at that point. Yeah. But, you know, now I'm a middle-aged man. I'm like, well, if you enjoy it, who the hell cares? So, yeah, I'm I'm back on the... I would gladly read a tie-in novel these days to a, a larger property. I'm trying to think if I've re- tried reading any more sort of superhero ones since that Spider-Man Iron Man one, and I don't believe I have. I do have a friend who has the novelization of The Death and Return of Superman, um, but I've never read it myself. So And I, and I have to... The thing is, I, I know that it's no barrier to quality. Like, it sh- a book could be good, it could be bad, you know, it does not matter. But for some reason, my brain just goes, why does that exist? Why, why did DC novelize, if that's a word, a comic event? I think back at that point, comics themselves were a much more niche thing. But this story that the death of Superman had happened interested a lot more people so you know to the layman who doesn't really collect comics what are you going to do buy 12 months worth of comics four <laughs> comics a month for however much they cost back then or one no, seven dollar novel that tells the same story well this is a quintessential problem isn't it like when you you know superman is 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 a cultural icon uh and yet you know if someone sees the new say superman movie uh, well, actually, I was going to say like they might watch the Zack Snyder movies, then try to pick up a comic and be confused. But I think they'd be equally confused either way with those, if I'm honest. But <laughs> but you know, it's like you know um, the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies come out, and uh, uh, someone who's just seen the movies for the first time goes, "Oh, Spider-Man seems pretty cool. I think I'll check out the comic." And then we go to the comic, and Spider-Man is actually the ghost of a cyborg robot because <laughs> Peter's been trapped in a in the negative zone for like 15 years or so, or something like that, you know. It's um, the creep of comic weirdness me- is, is what necessitates these kind of constant reboots and reimaginings to yeah. get back to the core idea, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I guess, I don't know if the movies really have seen any spikes in people buying comics but it's just another way of experiencing the characters because back in the mid to late 90s there weren't that many movies there were the terrible batman ones and i say terrible i mean batman forever and batman and robin i I love the first two the tim burton ones but that's what 89 92 so slightly different era but then after that there's nothing really until blade so yeah you know I'm, i'm i'm fairly sure that they novelized nightfall as well um i'm i'm sure that that was a thing and I feel like there's an, a novelization of No Man's Land that obviously cuts out a lot of stuff. But um, I know they've also done some of them as audio plays. Yeah. It's weird though, isn't it? Because again, just this weird prejudice I have where it's like I've consumed a lot of quote-unquote geek content over the years and will continue to do so, you know. Mm. Sadly, I can't think of a better word to describe it. But, you know, um, I used to read a ton of fantasy novels. 
you know, and for me, when I pick up a book, the incredible action and impossible things I expect to see generally involve magic or, you know, elves, shall we say, or impossible worlds, or I'm going to pick up a book and get kind of sci-fi. But for me, growing up, comics were always, you know, superheroes. And it's so weird, like, um, and this is just because my brain is stupid. If I ever see an elf in a comic, I'm like, oh, that's weird. <laughs> that should be in a book. <laughs> and if I ever see a super, if I ever read about a superhero, I'm like, well, this isn't right. I should have a picture in front of me. <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. There are certain things that feel naturally contained to one medium or the other, like, superheroes are big colorful dynamic they they work in a visual visual way but i guess because the way we sort of think of elves in fantasy these days is is what tolkien effectively created rather than up until then elves were like fairies weren't they you know the elves Mm. and the shoemaker that kind of thing but because tolkien did it first and did it so well it just feels natural that prose is where we would encounter elves so I, I totally get that. I, I should say, I read a book, God, it must have been over a decade ago, and I can't remember the name of the author, uh, and I'm clearly not about to look it up or I would have reached for my keyboard, uh, but it's a really cool superhero original novel called Soon I Will Be Invincible, and I would actually recommend it. I, I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um, okay. Uh, and I know the version I had had a cover by Brian Hitch. So they were definitely kind of like leaning into the comic kind of pedigree. But as far as I'm aware, it wasn't by like a known comic book writer or anything. It, it, the person was a novelist kind of first and foremost, but clearly had like a deep awareness of comic culture mm. because, you know, you know, it's one of those like um, when superheroes pop up in a completely different medium you can get away with doing the tropes again. Yeah. So, you know, you have the Superman character. You have the Flash character. Uh, and it was very much the DC universe, just kind of skewed slightly to be legally distinct. Um, but it was kind of an interesting story. It was about like a kind of... It was told from the perspective of a Lex Luthor or maybe Doctor Doom-esque villain. Hmm. And it was about the fact that like they 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 always kind of failed <laughs> because they were the bad guy, but they kind of succeeded or maybe didn't. And then and yeah, it's actually quite an interesting story. I, I would I would recommend it. The Fighting Fantasy series has a superhero entry as well. I think it's book seventeen, sixteen or seventeen in the series, the original publication order. Because um, it started with fantasy, a couple of sci-fi ones in there, and then all of a sudden, Steve Jackson released Appointment with Fear, where you play a superhero <laughs> called the Silver Crusader, and that one, most of the fighting fantasy books are illustrated by traditional fantasy illustrators. Yeah. Like Russ Nicholson, Malcolm Barter, Ian McCaig, which are names that are sort of known for producing these detailed black and white fantasy illustrations. This one was illustrated by Brian Bolland. <laughs> Oh, so wow. they really leaned into it. It's a lot of fun, actually, if you can track it down. Although I will say it's one of the most difficult fighting fantasy books. But interestingly, when they then reprinted the books back in the the mid-2000s, that was the only one that kept its original cover. That was the only one that still had the oh, that still had Brian Bolland's cover on it because it was just a, a perfect comic book illustration of an evil cyborg doctor guy. Do Is that one crying out for a graphic novel adaptation, PJ? No, 
I don't think so. Um, it's is your calendar open? Is what I'm is what I'm. <laughs> it's very gamey. Um, you know, you sort of get the world is established very well, and there's lots of nice little tributes to superhero comics within that world. But it very much feels to me when I play that one like I'm playing a game. Oh, interesting. The um, yeah, it's. Yeah, sorry, I just found myself thinking now about like kind of superheroes in different mediums. Like, I think the same could be said for role-playing games in in general, because mm. obviously D and D is like the market leader. Um, and I know for a fact there are quite successful superhero-based RPG games out there, which might be fun to try. But like somehow in my head, I'm always like, that's the domain of magic and. Um, fireballs i don't know it's weird i my brain is clearly i have a lot of prejudice <laughs> rattling around <laughs> my skull i have very briefly played one of the marvel rpg systems that's out there we're talking about 15 years ago now um i did a one shot i played as daredevil oh wow wow they get keys to the big car yeah yeah i enjoyed it i think i I only have vague memories of it It was a weird system that i don't really understand now where he uses stones instead of dice or something yeah but uh, i'm already i'm I'm already intrigued you by (laughs) saying you you've um you've actually sold it quite a bit (laughs) weird stones i'm okay with that we we should get some guests on and and play a jla role-playing game Oh my god, we should. <laughs> no, no, wait, wait, wait. A legally distinct <laughs> JLA role playing game. A Squadron Supreme role playing game. Oh my god. Oh, no. <laughs> Who would sue? That's the, that's the amazing part. Um, or could we just role play as any one of um, Rob Lee Field's um, extreme imprint characters? Oh my god. Why do my hands look so weird? Nobody would sue. Was his imprint called Extreme? Uh, yeah, I, I think so. I think yeah, so. it was like the sub sub imprint of Image. Hmm. That's the one where he had that dude. Oh god, I can't remember his name, but he was basically just Wolverine with a red costume. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever read any of the comics from that imprint because I'm just not a fan of Rob Liefeld. No, I don't think you really read those comics. I think they just kind of roll over you, like yeah. the tide. Yeah, um, and they go, look how extreme I am. And you go, yes, I mean, all it right. Was, it, it, to, I mean, one thing I'll say about the man, he, he likes what he likes, yeah. you know. Um, but PJ, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to segue this nicely now, what if we were to role play as uh, the Justice Legion A? Would anybody notice and would DC sue? Um, yes, they would. And yes, they would. Okay. Actually, come to think of it, they—they've that property's got to be sitting in a in a in a cupboard somewhere at DCHQ. You know, that's got to be prime for dusking down. I, I imagine it's in in a draw marked property of Grant Morrison. Do not touch. Oh, you're right. Actually, yeah, it's probably um it's probably buried under a pile of like heavy metal album covers. Like, <laughs> as far as I'm aware, my limited understanding is that that's all that Marvel and DC are putting out at the moment is um gnarly shit for lack of a better word oh 90s stuff again yeah but it's such a weird very 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 weirdly specific niche thing where it's like it's 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 gnarly it's like lobo 
if like if Lobo was an entire comic imprint, that's kind of that's the whole DC like dark multiverse kind of stuff. Okay. And that kind of like I think that stemmed from a Morrison idea as well. I think we can we can lay that at the feet of Morrison with um <laughs> multiversity as well. Oh yeah, true. That's yeah, I forgot that they'd done that. Um Is this like is is this for D- is this for Dark Pact that DC made with Morrison? Like uh, they they unleashed a force they didn't truly understand, and now and now Morrison can just continue to do whatever they want in their own pocket continuity of the DC universe, and the ramifications just they just they can just spin several years worth of of events off them. I mean, if it makes you the money, gotta get that Morrison money. <laughs> gotta get that sweet sweet comics dough. Um, but PJ, uh, speaking of. Um, uh, earth and reality shattering events that, that no doubt raked in that 1998 dough. Um, where on earth are we in uh, DC 1 million? Well, I think we're both very tired. Uh, we are. We have struggled <laughs> through some difficult moments in DC 1 million. We just read Detective Comics. I don't think either of us were particularly enamoured with it. No. But we are now reading the let's face it the issue that is the main reason we're covering this whole damn crossover it is jla one million (laughs) yes um of course which is a standalone issue tie in to the dc one million event uh which kind of sits between jla 23 and 24 which is where we kind of jumped off that's like the best point we think it fits in yeah this is this is, it, it was the months in between those this is the issue of jla that came out just after the second part of the sandman and starro story if you can remember that long ago on the podcast i know it's wild isn't it because imagine you you weren't keeping track of one million i mean like what the hell would you possibly <laughs> think is going and and i actually i will say it, it it's weird that this issue flows quite seamlessly into DC One Million Part Three, I believe, uh, to the point where we weren't sure initially where one stopped and the other started. Yeah, because I mean, uh, different artists. This one's uh, drawn by the uh, triumphantly returning Howard Porter, and then we also got Val Cimex or Cimex. Um and the fact that obviously they're both Morrison written, which of course we haven't enjoyed for an issue or so, and um, feature basically the same characters yeah you know so to the point where we're like oh i thought this was just like one big jumbo jumbo issue basically yeah we i mean porter and uh samix i i feel like their art styles are fairly similar Mm. obviously there are differences so you know if you're looking carefully you can find those but the final page of jla one million and the first page of dc one million three it it was hard to find the divide. Yeah. We think we have. We think we know where one ends and the other starts now, and that's that's where we're going to. But it meant that when I initially read the issue, I, I read one page too many. Well, and actually, I mean, thinking of it, is this Knox... That's kind of telling in itself, because are we about to dive into the most coherent run of the event? Um, We'll find out. Maybe coherent is the wrong word. Maybe <laughs> there's, there actually feels like there's a continuity. Yes. If that makes sense. Well, but yes, as you say, we will find out. Um, 
But um, but yeah, PJ. So um, I guess what what's happened? We've got we've had a uh, uh, yeah, the JLA are trapped in the future. Their future equivalents, the Justice Legion A, are trapped in the past. Uh, Vandal Savage uh, is um, trying to blow up major world cities with yeah, but he's he's failed. We didn't see any of that, but he has now failed. Uh, yes, uh, our, it's our own fault for not reading all the tie-in issues, but we are working off the trade here. Um, and also, uh, Solaris, who apparently is the uh, most terrifying threat you could imagine, and the primary antagonist of this event, who we still haven't met properly, sent a virus back in time through our man, which has now infected the entire planet in the past and is causing everyone to slowly lose their minds and become aggressive and paranoid. And it's crippling technology as well. And we read a whole issue of Detective Comics just for the one panel at the end where Batman 1 million says, ah, to defeat Solaris, we must create Solaris. And honestly, I'm still angry. Yeah. um, But, I mean... As clunky as it is, we have leapt from a from Batman of Batman One Million to Batman One Million, but from one creative team to the hands of Morrison again. So the difference is immediately uh, quite noticeable. So uh, I guess PJ, uh, we open on the Great Wall of China. Yeah, like, um, we've like got a, a caption at the top of the page that says, Hello, I'm JLA1 million. So, comics in the future <laughs> are sentient and talk to you? Uh, but this is a comic from the past, PJ. Oh, no. My brain. But maybe... Yeah, maybe... It's, I don't know. It's been infected by the Owlman virus. Maybe we've all been infected by the Owlman virus. That's why we're so <laughs> cynical now. But we get a... Batman is, is our first panel, and there's a caption introducing him as dynamic dark knight defender of pluto the terrifying asylum planet one half of the system's finest duo the cloaked crusader the knight's greatest detective his physical prowess is unequal to his iq 1045 and um yeah and uh, kind of uh, and and uh, batman 1 million who i desperately want to call batman of the future but you can't uh, is holding because that would be insulting i feel uh is holding um a, a a futuristic looking bowling ball with a uh, kind of like a little eye in it and uh, he says that um, between the advanced 20th century components he found in the back cave so really that's the entire previous issue summed up in you know less than 20 words didn't need that issue in this trade we certainly didn't know um, the micro centrifuge that they acquired from Cadmus and the sample of human blood We've been able to complete the solar computer core. To save the world of the 20th century, we have to create the galaxy's greatest villain. And thus we can infer that they have the heart of Solaris, basically. And in two speech bubbles, we've just had exactly what happened in that issue of Detective Comics. And, you know, didn't need it. Did not need it. It's all summed up here. And... It's funny because I think this is this is almost endemic of one of one of the big issues with DC One Million is that in one rather wordy speech bubble, Batman has explained a lot of things that have happened off panel. Uh, some of them kind of irrelevant, like the trip to the Batcave, 
Others, blink and you miss it. Very important if you know what's coming up later yeah. in the story. Which kind of makes you wonder, why wasn't some of this just put in the main event? I have to I have to ask. I know, I know. It's it's all the decisions made about DC one million are bizarre and I feel like maybe other crossovers learned from this in the future. Not all of them. Some of them are still pretty, you know, nonsensical. But anyway, we'll carry on. Batman does say this is worse than the time we reopened Pandora's box. And I want to read that story. <laughs> I know. I know. That sounds awesome. <laughs> um, but yeah, so basically um, Superman 1 million and Batman 1 million are having a, a, a kind of chit-chat, basically. And they're, they're both, again saying how kind of terrible it is that they are having to create Solaris. Again, kind of just telling us how awful Solaris is. Yeah, and then we get a whole caption about it as well. Solaris, the tyrant's son, one of the great primeval enemies of mankind, a super-intelligent stellar computer with vast offensive capabilities, heat, radioactivity, titanic intelligence, microwave transmissions, gravity distortion, the evil star once thought rehabilitated, Solaris has again turned on humanity. Show us that! <laughs> I should Stop say, telling us. <laughs> yeah, I should say I kind of like, I do enjoy the intentional cheese yes. of these panels. I mean, like Morrison is playing with the medium here and having a bit of fun. But as you say, yeah, it's just, please show us these events. They, 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 are, they apparently are so monumental that it would have been great if they'd been in the main series. Um, but yeah, basically the, the, the issue is simply... Uh, they need the power source of the JLA Watchtower to create Solaris. Uh, they can't get there because the uh, teleporters have been kind of switched off to prevent infection of the moon. So Superman 1 million has to leap to the moon. But this is a bit of a problem because his powers are fading in the past. Yeah, so this is where we get the, uh, the caption about Superman, Scion of the Superman dynasty, the son of tomorrow, invulnerable, unbeatable, a genius to the power of ten Einstein units. His awesome abilities are bestowed by the light of the system's super sun, our 20th century sun. His power levels are dropping fast. So my question, PJ, is if Batman 1 million has an IQ of 1045, and if Superman 1 million is a genius to the power of ten Einstein units... Who's smarter? Um, well, I'm. how smart is one Einstein unit? We get that figure, we can extrapolate. Uh, an Einstein unit is about 10 metric pounds. Okay, so 10 of them are 100 metric pounds. How much IQ is that? Uh, it's uh, maybe, maybe um, uh, a litre. Okay. So a liter of IQ. Uh, carry that. Mm. Batman. Yeah. I mean I mean he has to be, right? Um otherwise Batman really is irrelevant on this team. Yeah. Um but no, but a fun moment because uh we get uh Superman one million saying he has to try. So he goes up, up, and and as we turn the page and he makes this epic leap up into the atmosphere. Uh, his speech bubble is empty because, of course, there's there's no air up there, and it's a fun it's a fun moment. I think. I also feel like the the pose reminds me of sort of some of the golden age panels of Superman, where before they gave him the power of flight and he would just leap 
from place to place. And it, I, I, I'm wondering if there's a specific panel Porter pulled from for this one that he's uh, referencing. But even if not, I think it's a lovely throwback panel for there. Yeah, and again, um, you know, kind of, you know, carrying Morrison's... I, don't, I was going to say like love of cheese, but that's a bit unfair. But like the kind of... Clearly Morrison, as we see in a lot of their work, has a deep and abiding love of the what Superman means as a comic book character. Mm. And yeah, just going like, oh yeah, just up, up and away. It's cheesy, it's daft, but it's actually quite integral to the character. Yeah. So here we also get the title and the credits. So the story is Prisoners of the 20th Century, which is a great title. I love mm. that. Uh, and then Grant Morrison, writer, Howard Porter, penciler, John Del Inca, Kenny Lopez, letterer, Pat Garrahy, colorist, heroic age separator, Tony Bedard, associate editor, and Dan Raspler, editor. And of course, we also get a uh, blinking, you miss it, uh, text uh, roll call of the two teams. Um, but I don't think there's much need to. No, go there is. That. There's something interesting here. So, oh, interesting. Yeah, if 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 you're reading everything in sequence because you get featuring the greatest heroes of the 853rd century superman batman flash starman wonder woman aquaman our man and then it's and guest starring the legendary justice <laughs> league of america which is a lovely touch steel huntress plastic man zauriel big barder manhunter from mars and batman batman oh. who is in the future on pluto hmm how is he in this issue interesting um I, I'm genuinely skumped, PJ. Do you, do you have an answer to that? Yeah, because I read it earlier. Oh, because I swear I have also read this issue, and I, I really just can't bring to mind what on earth. <laughs> oh, I, heck. I, I think yeah, it's a reach. It it's a yeah. reach, but yeah. Okay, yeah, there it is. I, I just worked it out. I was thinking, like, what the hell is going on there? Um, okay, but yeah, uh, uh, that all will be revealed. Uh, so we cut from our familiar. Heroes of the 853rd century to this weird, primitive, uh, primeval version of the Justice League uh, featuring Zariel, Plastic Man and Barda, uh, who are um, uh, freaking out a bit. Yeah, they've, they've detected the incoming Superman. They don't know that it's Superman, but it's moving at one ten thousandth the speed of light and it'll be here in minutes. And Zariel says, and it's shaped like a man. And Barda's carrying a massive gun. Yeah, and just saying the kind of things which I think you could only get away with in a Morrison comic looking like Barda, which is, quiet, we're about to go to war with the future. <laughs> Sometimes, PJ, it keeps me awake at night, the idea that I will never have an opportunity in my life to say, without irony, we're about to go to war with the future. You can go to war with the future whenever you like, John. You just have to set traps around your house for future you, but do it when you're so tired that you'll forget you've done it. Actually, come to think of it, every every day I do go outside and burn a tyre just to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, screw you, future me. Um, but yeah, but the, the roll call continues, and I do like the deliberate inversion here where it's almost like you know the familiar one million heroes, but let's introduce you to... These old characters you might not have heard of, such as such as Zoriel, who's a fallen angel, and Plastic Man, who's the master of metamorphosis, and Barda, who's leader of the female furies of Apocalypse. Just fun. Bit of cheese. Yeah. 
And over the page we get more because we're now in Steel's lab and Huntress and Steel are both there. And, you know, there again, oh, Steel, we're under attack. Can we repel the Justice Legion? And Steel's adapted something from Epoch's designs in their files. So uh, hey, Epoch PJ? coming back again. PJ, from your favourite uh, favorite crossover. I liked bits of that comic. I just, Grifter's mask is stupid. I think you need to lift the mask, PJ, and admit that that story was uh, more important to the series than you 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 will you will acknowledge. Grifter's mask is stupid. Uh, we oh, get Huntress. I, I choose the, to ignore that. <laughs> uh, in the black of night, in the light of the moon, she stalks the deadliest game of all: the giant gorilla. And uh, <laughs> she, <laughs> uh, to be fair. She could be doing a very good job because I, out of there, all the weird stuff that goes on in Gotham, yeah. I don't think there are regular guerrilla attacks. See? See? You know, it's like buy guerrilla insurance. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> you never know and you'll need it. Um, and then we have Steel just kind of looking pretty awesome, I have to say. I yeah. think Porks is enjoying himself. Um, and uh, yeah, we um, Steel is kind of admiring like a big glowing ball of light so despite uh, his claims that he's not really a superhero that he's just a bit of an engineer skill is both the de facto leader of the team now and and has also just built a time machine even if it's not perfect which is kind of cool yeah but he doesn't have a power source for it uh, because they need it for their defensive systems and huntress points out well you know, you're the leader, you have to make the hard decisions and steal questions of saying, well, who said I was leader? And Huntress just replies with, you're wearing the S. It's a fun point. Mm-hmm. And um, also really, a really nice feature where uh, it's, ne- it's never really touched on, but um, we know that Steel can fly, we know that his armour uh, allows him to fly, but uh, we get a moment where he's essentially blasting off like a, like a <laughs> yeah. rocket, which I think is amazing. Like, I love uh, it. It's like there's, there's clouds of smoke and, and um, sound effects going like rumble. And um, Huntress grabs his hand just as he blasts off and says, you remind me of Miss Armstrong, my fifth grade teacher. She was always right too. Because Huntress is a teacher. Is she really a teacher? Yeah, Helena Bertinelli is a teacher. Oh, I don't know idiot. if she's fifth grade, but she's definitely a teacher. I did not know that. I'm amazed. Actually, I feel that has come up because... Sorry, my memory's terrible because I think I may have commented on the fact that as as potentially unrealistic as it is that Bruce Wayne is able to fit so much into his day, I know that <laughs> teachers have to do a lot of planning. And I mean, we don't know that she's a good teacher. <laughs> no, maybe she has like one one student, like a <laughs> no, it's like a kind of private tuition sort of thing. Um. Oh, and I did I did gloss over it, PJ. But sorry, uh, Steel gets uh, an intro box as well and says, "Man of Metal." The Justice Genius, the League's technological titan, wields the shattering power of his atomic hammer against tyranny and injustice. Oh, and apparently his armour survived to the 118th century and was worn by Steel Seven, Steelman of the New Centurions, and Lancelot Grail, the Cosmic Knight. Which is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, I hope they, I hope they washed it at some point. Nope. It's probably a little musky is all I'm saying. No, when a steel dies, their corpse just stays in the armour and you have to try and squeeze in around it. and go. Oh, PJ, no. 
No, that's horrible. <laughs> um, but yeah, but what's happening? What's happening, PJ? Well, Superman 1 million has landed on the moon. And the League have detected him. And Zariel just says, uh, six foot four, 200 pounds, 3.5 on the Richter scale. It's Superman. And then Steel is is taking charge and basically saying, look, we, we know that they're powerful. They're from the future. They've got this virus, but we're the JLA. We need to deal with this. We got a reputation to uphold. <laughs> um, do you get the impression that Morrison's having fun with this issue? Yes. And I think it's telling because it's almost like as much as Morrison's the architect of this event and, you know, their hand has kind of guided everything we've read, I somehow feel that like the moment Morrison's back with familiar characters, they're clearly just getting some lovely character moments here already. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah, just clearly having fun. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, Zariel lets out a, a cry because uh, something's taking control of our teleport channels. They're here. So battle is about to be joined, basically. Yeah, and back in China, Batman is telling the Justice Legion, you know, Superman's successful. His powers will now be reorganizing the League teleport system so we can get up to the Watchtower as well. But they'll be frightened. They think we're hostile. We're going to have to fight. And then we get our caption boxes introducing Flash, the system's fastest man, defender of Mercury. Now, Wonder Woman, and I think this is quite interesting, probably has come up in a comic we haven't read, but mm. protector of Venus, carved from living marble by the exiled Amazons of Themyscara and imbued with the spirit of the goddess of truth, Wonder Woman battles for universal peace. The goddess of truth is Diana after she died. So presumably her spirit is still Wonder Woman and inhabits this marble statue. Yes, of course. And, uh, you know... Diana is permanently dead. Eventually. Well, eventually, at some point, one would imagine. But yes, as of the continuity right now, Wonder Woman is dead. Her mom has taken over. No, she's uh, back now. Do you not remember? She had a whole conversation with Steel. Oh, for God, PJ, my brain is like a sieve. I keep thinking about the the Scar Conqueror. I keep thinking about issue 23 of JLA and everything that's <laughs> happened in <laughs> one million has fallen out of my brain. Um, but yeah, unless that came up in, say, the Wonder Woman tie-in comic, that seems like quite a big revelation. Yeah. yeah, I feel like it is. I feel like knowing that eventually Wonder Woman's going to die again and become the goddess of truth again, and then her spirit's going to inhabit this other Wonder Woman, that feels pretty big. Or maybe it's like a kind of back to the future kind of revelation where Wonder Woman and Wonder Woman 1 million meet. And uh, and uh, Wonder Woman of the future goes. Oh yes, I am. You know, I I I I am. This is merely a body that I, the goddess of truth, kind of, oh, I am inhabiting. And then Diana would go. Oh yes, I was the goddess goddess of truth, but in this timeline, I stopped being the goddess and I came back to life. And then future Wonder Woman just kind of fades away, and then comes back for this issue. I'm kind of imagining it. Uh, I'm just saying, like. That's weird, right? Yeah, it is. It is. Anyway, Aquaman just looks after Neptune and can control water. And he says, you may scare ordinary people, Batman, but let's face it, this is going to be... And then they just teleport into the Watchtower and Barda attacks Wonder Woman, which, fair enough. Yeah, it's a fair point. Um, 
is another fair point that Aquaman has water for hair? <laughs> yeah, I love Aquaman's water hair. Like his hair is, which presumably means he's he's exuding it. From it his... looks very bubbly as well, so he must have put some soap in it. Is it just endlessly flowing out of his head? <laughs> is it like just your teammate is a constant tap, just kind of it's just pouring out of his skull? I mean, as if you need to wash your hands after a fight, then just put them in Aquaman's <laughs> head, and you're all good. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I mean, as 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 you just said, PJ, uh, Wonder Woman arrives uh, with a with a boom and uh, uh, a lot of um, uh, early CGI um, kind of quasi three D Kirby crackle um, on the moon, uh, only for Barda to literally just be standing behind her with. Um, her um, mega rod raised and just basically goes absolutely hog wild <laughs> on <laughs> on Wonder Woman's shield. It's uh, yeah, it's it's big, big explosion. Yeah, and it's very very cool. It's, you get a whole splash page of the moment of connection with Wonder Woman, sort of on one knee on the floor holding her shield up while Barda brings the mega rod down, and it's a really impressive page. Yeah, and again, um, I kind of like that Barda just, true to her nature, just just gets the preemptive strike. Basically, um, I mean, maybe it would have been better if we talked it over, but uh, kind of fun nonetheless. Well, I think the JLA are under the impression that the Legion are being affected by the Owlman virus, so. And we do also get a fun little caption, which I don't think I've ever seen before or since, which is. Um, like a like a size seismograph, basically, like uh, literally just showing a, a waveform of the impact. I, I think it's sort of the the implication for me is because we also have a, a caption on the previous page showing close ups of Wonder Woman's bracelets, calling them harmony and charity, saying Wonder Woman's bracelets forged of thinking metal from the web nebula, and it's sort of them giving a readout effectively of the impact is how I interpret that. Yeah, again, a, a, a uh, lots of just weird caption stuff that Morrison's playing around with this issue, just having a bit of fun, I guess. <laughs> um, and uh, meanwhile, um, the rest of the league uh, are kind of running into action. Uh, I, it's hard to describe exactly what Plastic Man is doing at the moment. He's like a a, a, a big chain of balls kind of bouncing along, I guess. Yeah, it's it's odd. Huntress is running in front of him. Zariel's flying above him. Yeah, and uh, Eric's action stations, and uh, uh, Zariel dives into the deep water tanks, which we have previously seen in the Prometheus story. Yes, Aquaman used them to basically get the sprinkler system working. And uh, Zariel, I guess, being an angel, can kind of fly or at least swim relatively well uh, through water. And uh, meanwhile, we just get Steel kind of just calmly walking into his armory, which is quite nice. And, you know, it's a direct contrast to the energy of everyone else. Mm -hmm. And uh, he just quietly looks at this uh, room full of weaponry and goes, to push or not to push? Interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We cut away before we can work out what he's going to push or not push. And Batman 1 million teleports into Aquaman's deep-sea simulator tank. 
which is basically a flooded cave. And oh look, there's our Batman just lying on the shore, unconscious. Yeah, to the point where to the point where it does kind of beg the question why Batman's soul needed to be sent to the future. Uh you know, but there we go. Um but yes, uh, so there are, there are too too many Batmans. There is one too many Batmans. And uh yeah, uh Zariel kind of bursts out of the water, looking quite impressive because he is a he is a guardian angel, and says, Why have you done these things? And he, he tells Batman One Million to get away from Batman. And Batman One Million then says, Look, I've sent his neuropsychic net into the future with your other teammates. Sorry, I had my reasons, but I'm making sure his body remains healthy. And also Aquaman's here. And then uh, Aquaman One Million encases Zauriel in a big water bubble. Uh, yes, and uh, we get the caption, Justice Legion A1, Justice League of America 0. Which um, is the only time they're going to keep scoring this issue. Uh, d- yeah, so uh, just, you know, kind of keep tracking your head. Uh, and then we get um, Flash 1 million, uh, John Fox, who is the Flash of a different future to the rest of the team, who himself travelled to the far, far future to join the Justice Legion A. Hope you're keeping track. Um, who is standing in a very bizarre room, which is uh, decorated in pink, red... Yellow and black, uh, which is unusual, PJ. It is, and it's speaking to him. A voice coming from everywhere, disorienting him. It's it's catching him off guard. He doesn't know where he is or what's happening, and the confusion is enough for Huntress to leap out and shoot him in the neck with a dart, which contains a strong, rapid-acting sedative that can uh, basically stop a speedster. Yes, because... uh, Now, Peter, you may be able to comment on this because it comes up a heck of a lot. Um, The flashes, plural, have an enhanced metabolism, Mm -hmm. which basically means that, as they say here, that they're more susceptible to chemical attack because they kind of metabolize it quicker. But I guess it also wears off quicker. It does. And I did study biology once upon a time. <laughs> yeah, but that, I, I, I presume that's why while he's sort of trying to metabolise the actual sedative, Huntress shouts, he's all yours, Plastic Man, and suddenly boxing glove fists pop out of the walls from all angles, punching John Fox in the face, as Plastic Man compares it to Raging Bull. And uh, we see, um, as PJ rightly put it, that the room is in fact Plastic Man, and we see from the outside that he is... Uh, well, kind of crouched next to a door, uh, and uh, is is big and cube like, um, and uh, asks Huntress to get Flash out of his duodenum, and then burps, <laughs> like you do, which is fun. Um, and you know, I, I feel the flashes are generally so powerful. It is nice to see them taken down a peg every now and then. Well, yeah, it shows you know, Huntress and Plastic Man working as a team, using their heads to think about how best way to take down a Flash, and executing a plan flawlessly. Oh yeah, because I mean they're they're both underdogs here, yeah, like massively in terms of just raw power. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, we see that Aquaman, who is uh, 
kind of just above this whole situation is basically like, look, you know, this is ridiculous. Like, why do we keep having to brawl with these throwbacks, as he puts it? Because while they may look like us, their brains haven't even developed neocortex structures, let alone basic civilized supercortical reasoning. So, yeah, he's a bit of a future snob. Yeah, he is. And, and Batman brings him down a little bit and says, look, these throwbacks, they're the only thing standing between this system and annihilation. We need to. And then Zauriel bursts out of the bubble of water, shouting, we learn fast. That won't work a second time with his flaming sword held aloft. And uh, the little factoid says that Zauriel's sword was cast in the foundries of a fifth heaven, uh, which in the afterlife in continuity is Macon. No, wait, Makanon. No, I forgot about that. Yeah, Makanon. Um, a creation of elemental angelic fire, it embodies Zariel's will and can cut through all bonds, dispel shadows, and even wound non-material entities. Yeah, so it looks like Batman and Aquaman are in trouble. And Aquaman is, is basically saying, ah, oh, I can take him. And Batman says, look, why don't we just stop fighting? And he removes his mask and revealing the face of a guy. That's a guy. as much as I can tell you there. And he just says to <laughs> Zariel, look into my soul and tell me what you see there. And again, um, you know, using a bit of the Batman logic, which has presumably prevailed up until the 853rd century and finding an alternate way of solving the problem, which I quite like. And then we come to what I think might be the best scene in the issue mm. which is Steel in his armoury standing in front of this impressive technological array uh, talking to somebody off panel who we don't see and he says I could have activated the secure systems I've been installing EM pulses neural wipes, genetically targeted atomic bullets and I have the world's greatest superheroes right here at my disposal I really think we could have beaten you all I had to do was press the button. And we get these five panels done very well. It's a trick I've seen done a few times before in comics, and I love it, which is a single static camera image of this button. And we see Skeel's finger kind of come just into shot, and it's hovering over the button. And then it gradually pulls away, and Skeel goes, but then I thought about it for a minute. Yeah, and he says... You may be the future JLA, but you're still the JLA. And the JLA is all about saving the world. And I thought, what would my JLA do in your shoes? And then I made one of those hard decisions. And then we see Superman 1 million stood behind him, holding the Solaris core. And Steel says, there's an S on your costume somewhere too. So I think you know what I'm talking about. And I don't believe humanity made it to your year just for this to beat us. Tell me I'm not wrong. And Superman says, I'm holding the planet's last hope in my hands. We need your help. That's what the S is about. Yep. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and yeah, you do have to squint a little bit, but there is an S on uh, Superman 1 Milling's costume as well. And um, at that exact moment, uh, Wonder Woman 1 Million uh, comes flying through the wall, um, kind of... Uh, calling out to her uh, her bracelets for uh, you know a damage report but they can barely they can barely talk uh, as a uh, blast of energy floors her and 
<laughs> we see uh, the kind of smoking figure of Barda step into shot and says she might last a week or two on the fire pit crust colonies of Armageddon, but she lacks discipline. And we see that uh, Barda is holding an absolutely massive future cannon on her shoulder. And uh, yeah, looking a little cocky, I would say, and kind of with 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 good cause. Yeah, and Steele says, "Look, you can stand down. We've got a plan. All good. Stop shooting, Wonder Woman, <laughs> please." Yeah, thank you for returning the particle cannon, which is a lovely a lovely bit. <laughs> um, and it's also kind of nice as well because we've been told repeatedly throughout this series that no matter what you do. Uh, the heroes of the future are just so much more advanced that anything you try is pointless. So it's actually kind of nice to see that the heroes we kind of know and love could actually hold their own. Yeah, definitely. In fact, Barda was winning against Wonder Woman quite convincingly. Yeah, and I, I choose to believe that, you know, Zariel would have inverted the fish and fowl team and probably beaten Aquaman 1 million if he, yeah. had, if he had to. Aquaman 1 million is too cocky. Far too cocky, and and his hair's made of water, which um, is a stylistic choice, but I don't think it would be that useful in battle. <laughs> I mean, my hair's made of hair, and isn't that useful in battle either? So, <laughs> um, but PJ, um, the, with with this uh, silly misunderstanding all resolved, uh, what's happening down on Earth? Well, uh, Jean and our man are still stood in front of Montevideo. The Blue Beetle's ship is also hovering behind Jean. And Jean says, we've contained it, Montevideo, behind a radiation-proof dome, but the virus is still taking its toll. The planet's survival is measured in hours and asks for a progress update. And this is where we get captions for Jean and our man. John Jones, last survivor of the ancient Martian race, with powers rivaling the best of the Superman dynasty. The alien ace has pledged to use his unearthly abilities in the service of his adopted homeworld. Uh, yeah, and um, our man's there as well, really. Um, Master of time. Uh, and uh, yeah, then we get Oracle, and we get a panel of, um, I guess, kind of like just to give you a taste of the world and what's kind of going on, basically, um, because uh, she has lots of TV screens and um, we see shots of rioting. Um, apparently zoos are being closed because animals are attacking the staff. <laughs> um, so you know it's the apocalypse because the zoos are closing down. Um, yeah, and uh, she estimates that maybe they've got six hours before people start tearing each other apart. Yeah, so Steele says, that's not going to happen. We've got this. And Superman says, okay, now we're all succumbing to the effects of the Owlman virus because we've brought it up to the Watchtower. Oops. Yeah, thanks, guys. <laughs> Could have worn uh, a mask. <laughs> let's build a tyrant, son. Uh, yeah, which, um, you know, definitely sounds very punchy. Um, may the future forgive us. And we we turn the page, and it's maybe two hours later, and the two teams are... Uh, having a great big uh, kind of uh, 80s montage as they, they build Solaris. Uh, and the most striking thing is that Plastic Man has arranged his body, I guess, into scaffolding, essentially. Yeah, I love that moment. Plastic Man just being a, a tower that they can build Solaris in. 
Um, Superman points out to Steel, you know, the time engine you built wouldn't have taken you far enough into the future, just a few thousand years, but, you know, we can still use it to power Solaris. And Yeah, yeah which I, do, I just want to say is that I like, I like that. It's a fun little throwaway line, but I do like the idea that um, time machines are a bit like cars. And you might have like a small runaround that can only do like a few thousand yeah. years in either direction, but you need like a proper cruiser if you want to go a million years into the future. Yeah. Yeah. And then Steel does ask, well, I've been thinking about that. Where did Solaris expect you to find this energy? And Superman says, ah, you're very smart. Batman asked the same question. Obvious choices, Green Lantern's power ring or Starman's gravity rod. Oh, look, Starman's just arrived. Uh. Yeah, and he he steps in and he's holding uh, the Quarvat, the Grav, um, and and he's holding a, a miscellaneous green rock under under one hand, which we saw him collect. Um, it's the Kryptonite. Really not sure why this unidentified mineral is uh, important, but uh, uh, apparently the captions seem to think that he's a traitor. Um, maybe they read the Scarman issue as well. And um, there's a shadow of a bat man behind him. Here's the thing, though. He says, sorry, I didn't answer the alert, family business. So he's clearly just arrived from Starman 1 million. A hell of a lot's happened in between Starman 1 million and now. Yeah, but but he's evil, Pete. Or maybe he isn't. I don't know. I think he's probably, I don't know. Maybe he took in a, an, he just took an afternoon or something. But he says, he says, why is everyone staring? And then Batman just leaps out behind him and points at him and goes, Starman, I accuse you of betraying the Legion and the Commonwealth of Humanity. So why don't you tell us exactly what the Night Fragment is? I'll tell you, Batman, it's Kryptonite. Now, PJ, we don't know that. Um, but if you talk about like a confusing page, um, we have a caption that says, a traitor in the Legion, question mark, even though... Uh, you'd only know that if you'd read the Starman tie-in, not even if you'd read the main, um, the main DC One Million event book, and also the Night Fragment gets a caption describing it. it says an artifact of unknown origin discovered by Prime Starman Ted Knight. So if you'd only read this issue, I mean, you'd have no flipping idea what's going on. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Not at all. Um. But I do like that the uh, gravity rod is acknowledged as number three on the five most powerful weapons in the galactic net list. Yeah, that's quite nice. I want to know if uh, the Green Lantern ring is above or below it. If, if the ring is one or two, or maybe four or five. It's got to be above, right? You would have thought so. You would have thought so. And of course, at this point, Kyle's ring is the only ring as well, which um, I do kind of like as well. Mm. Was Kyle's ring generally meant to be more powerful than a regular ring? Yes, because it was the first one that didn't have the yellow impurity. Mm. But in terms of like the scale of things it could generate, was it was it bigger, more powerful in that way, or just you know the same? I think there's vague mention of it being like an improved version of the ring, but I don't know if you really ever see much actual evidence of that beyond the again the not having the weakness to yellow thing. Sure. Okay, well, well, PJ, that is that is the end of the issue, such as it is contained in this trade paperback. It does feel like we might be missing a page, doesn't it? 
Yeah, if only because in the trade they often made a point of uh, blocking out kind of bits of, you know, incidental editorial text that wouldn't make sense in this context. Um, now, there's a blue bar at the bottom of the page, which could have been like, find out what happens next in the pages of, I don't know, DC 1 million, but it does seem a bit abrupt. Yeah, it's it's a weird place for it to end. Um Odd issue, I think, I'm going to say. <laughs> I, I, I really enjoy it. It's a lot of fun. That's the main main word I would use to describe this issue is fun. I don't quite understand why the Justice Legion have to teleport up to the Watchtower before Superman's arrived and explained the situation to the League. It seems to be just so that they can fight. Yeah. Um... Oh, God, it's so weird, PJ, because I like this issue as well. I agree it doesn't make a lot of sense in the greater context of anything. But at the same time, this series was really crying out for a moment like this. Yeah, you know, oh, definitely. It's, al- it's almost like we need to have some fun or this series is just going to like crumble around us, basically. Yeah, and it's nice to see like the, the JLA... I mean, they're not to us, but... In the grand scheme, the JLA second stringers, effectively, mm. holding their own against versions of the top tier guys. Um, and, you know, I, I really enjoy seeing that. You know, Huntress and Plastic Man taking down a Flash. Zauriel fighting Batman and Aquaman. It's it's great. All that stuff. I really enjoy it. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. Lots and lots of fun. And Morrison clearly knows these characters and their powers, and finds interesting ways to use them. I think it's also telling when you consider that the scenario in which Morrison took over the reins of JLA in 97 was the JLA's stock has fallen. They're not the greatest heroes in the world anymore. There's a whole cast of characters which like are not recognisable. So Morrison's like, let's go back to the Magnificent Seven. You know, that's for JLA. And I love, I think it actually just shows it's a strength of Morrison's run on the series so far in that the characterization and um, just the characterization and getting to know these, 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 these figures has been so good that you can have a JLA at this point, which is made up of Steel, Plastic Man, Huntress, Big Barda, and Zor- Zariel. Yep. And it feels like the JLA. Yeah. Like it, it's, it's a complete inversion of you know, where we were in issue one, really. Yeah, it really is. We haven't... Batman and Jean both, I I say, have cameos in this issue, and Batman's is non-speaking. But we haven't really spent much time with the Big Seven in this story, certainly since they travelled to the far future. And yes, we are going to get a Superman issue in a couple of weeks' time that is going to be Superman in the future. Yes, they're all going to come come back eventually dc one million four i think they're probably still absent in three but you know it's it's you haven't really felt their absence so much no i think also maybe just because we've been bouncing about all over the place like so much i don't know it's it's so weird isn't it because i again i very much enjoy this issue um i think morrison was maybe trying to squeeze in like a hundred and one different ideas into this series. Yeah. And it's funny that 
the moment they actually dial down the number of ideas a bit and just focus on a a misunderstanding and a brawl between two teams which is again an old trope but it there's enough interesting quirks in it that makes it kind of new and novel and i think it suddenly the storytelling starts to shine again because you're like oh this is fun and like you know we've got barda doing weird things with a particle cannon and we've got steel inverting the the stereotype of just fighting by using his head and then and you're like oh this is good like there's a bit of vibrancy i like this and then suddenly just in like the last page it comes to this kind of like just jarring halt where you've got this star man and the night fragment thing and this this bizarre situation with the night fragment where we have no way of understanding or caring why it's important it's like the captions know more than we do it's it's um it's bizarre yeah yeah it's it's an odd duck it really is <laughs> it's as, as a standalone issue makes no sense at all as part of the greater dc one million narrative it moves it forward somewhat but is also suffers in the same way a lot of the other ones even though the, the better ones have uh, in terms of being part of the big crossover and yeah i think it's 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 endemic of dc one million as a whole isn't it that it's a lot of fun but doesn't make that much sense i, I don't know and it's so weird like for for a series that apparently had like 74 tie-in issues uh and we haven't read all of them admittedly but it always feels like we're in the wrong place you know each time yeah. like the action has always just happened off panel like we've always just missed the main event and then we have to kind of like pick up and infer what's important like the night fragment feels like a maybe like a storytelling element that was really important in like the first draft of the story yeah and then with every subsequent kind of revision it just got shunted further and further and further down until it gets practically no screen time. Like, it's the MacGuffin that this series hangs upon, and yet it's just... We, we have no... Like, we're, we're over halfway through the series, and we have no no way of knowing why this thing is important. Well, it's the same, the same as we haven't really encountered Solaris in any detail, mm. and not even in a... Solaris is just looming in the shadows way, just in a you've told us a lot about this villain and we know nothing we haven't seen it you need to show it and i i, I don't know the details are maybe getting lost mm. no 100 percent. and i mean like you want to read uh i mean you if you read all-star superman you know uh solaris pops up in that kind of out of nowhere but the impact is completely different it's just it's played it, it works so well in all-star superman uh, whereas here, it, it, it's all just a bit of a mystery. And I think the same goes for the Hourman virus. I mean, mm. like, the destruction of Montevideo has more real-world consequences because we see it. Whereas, like, we get one panel where, you know, Oracle is looking at TV screens to suggest that the world is actually ending. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, uh, the, the threat of the Hourman virus is completely removed like we it doesn't feel real yeah yeah this is like in that detective comics issue where we only had the one page of firefly and that was it yeah 
Although this is a and, lot better than that issue of Detective Comics. Oh, God, it's so <laughs> much better, yeah. I mean, and we have to assume that, you know, Morrison was a little un, unsatisfied with how the Hourman virus was played out because this does feel like a trial run for what will become, you know, World War Three, basically, which does it a lot better. Yeah. Yeah, I have to say, my overall feeling with DC 1 million at the moment is... I'm enjoying it, but I'm looking forward to getting back to the main JLA series. Yeah. It's really funny because I've read this book many times and mm. I always enjoy it when I read it. Uh, you know, it's maybe not, it's not, it doesn't quite reach for high points of some of the main JLA books, but I, ha- I do enjoy it. And then visiting it this time with like a critical eye and kind of like, because we're pausing at each issue, it's kind of mimicking the, the, how you would have consumed this as individual issues and yeah like it, it, it's the weaknesses are definitely showing yeah like there's a lot of like individually good moments particularly in this issue lots of nice character moments lots of fun superhero beaks but as a whole it's it's a mess like it's a real mess yeah yeah you know i i like the conceit that it's an issue of Justice Legion A's comic, guest starring the JLA, these legendary heroes of the past. I, I like that element of it. I like the captions. I, I like all the dialogue in it as well. I think I think Morrison has a lot of fun with the dialogue in this issue. Mm. Um, but yeah, I don't know. DC 1 million kind of leaving me a little cold overall at the moment. I know. And, I, and again, I would say like, this is, and I, I think, um, as you said as well, PJ, this is a much, much, much better issue than what came before. Yeah. Like, the difference in creative team is kind of striking. You know, it's it's imperfect subject material. And I think some of that blame does lie with, with Morrison having, like, kind of plotted every issue. But, like, when Morrison's, like, actually at the wheels, like, it is, it's, it's better. Like, you know, it's not bad, it's just like as a whole, it's not great, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah, I think it does. I think so. You know, I'd still rather have a a slightly muddy, mediocre Morrison issue than oh, I don't know, the Starman tie in. Or that Batman <laughs> or that Batman tie in. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Um, but yeah, PJ, I mean, um, is there anything more to say? I mean, it's a, a bit of a, a, as you say, an odd, an odd duck, really. Yeah. Um, I don't think I really do have anything more to say about that issue, which I feel like is, is unusual for an issue of JLA by Morrison and Porter. But but I think it, as part of this crossover, it just doesn't excite me the way a normally numbered issue of JLA by Morrison and Porter does. Yeah, and yeah, I think I, I think I agree. I, I have to agree, really. I, yeah, um, it's so weird because there's a lot I like. I, 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 you know, it's a it's a stupid thing to say. I really like the look of Scarman One Million. I think it's a it's a great costume. I like that the future team is not a direct one to one comparison of the present mm-hmm. team. Um, I wish we'd actually spent some more time with him in the pages of the series to work out his motivations or what's going on. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I can't, I, honestly, yeah, sorry folks. Really can't think of much else to say here. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I promise, folks, we've only got, I think, another four issues to look at. The two DC One Millions, the Superman and the Resurrection Man issues. So, yes, you know, another eight weeks and then we'll <laughs> be right back with the main JLA series and it'll be business as usual. We promise. Hey, but PJ, I mean, you know, it might not be perfect, but at least it, it, it means we can live in this period for a little longer. It means the Morrison era, you know, stretches on just that little bit longer. Well, exactly. And, you know, there are still a lot worse events we could be looking at. So, yeah, I mean, if you want a... If you want to see, you know, actually see Solaris in action, uh, go read All-Star Superman. Um, I should also apologize that I haven't read uh, Kronos 1 million. I uh, got a bit distracted this week. Um, I've, I've done some research, though, and I understand this maybe not quite as relevant as I thought it was going to be, but I'm going to read it because I made a promise. I just need to actually do it. You see, PJ's good. He does his homework. I don't. <laughs> I'm a rebel, apparently. Ooh, you're such a bad boy, John. I know the <laughs> the, ba- the the bad boy of um, recap podcasts. <laughs> um, but PJ, uh, is is there anything you'd like to add about something unrelated to JLA, or you know, anything to say? Uh, no, I'm hungry and tired. That's all I got. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so you know, dear listener, do um you know kind of do spare us a thought you know and uh the sacrifice we made we made this issue um but be like steel you know be like steel that's the moral covered um, in metal yeah and uh musky oh with a big hammer with a big hammer yeah um oh yeah that's that's a positive isn't it you know steel kind of just shining cementing his his presence as that's you true. know should always be in the league um but no, with nothing more to add, and, and we are both tired, uh, a massive thank you to Gav Mitchell for drawing our cover artwork. He does good work. And to uh, Elliot Red for composing and performing our theme tune, Justice. He also does good work. Uh, and if you enjoy hearing PJ and I talk, you can find us on social media. Our details are in the description, as is our email address if you'd like to get in touch, because we very much value your your letters. We do. We genuinely, I love reading those when they come in. It's it's absolutely brilliant. I do genuinely love connecting with people who listen to our podcast in that way. So please do continue reaching out. Oh, oh yeah. Like just honestly, like just for greatest honour. It's really lovely. Um, but on that note, PJ, the time has come. Uh, one sun is setting. Uh, an evil, an evil sun is rising. Uh, would you mind seeing us off in your own unique fashion? Dinner time.